You're listening to Seeing and Believing, a film and television podcast that searches for the sacred on screen. I'm Wade Bearden. And I'm Kevin McLenathan. And Wade, do you think it would be too much or too on the nose for me to make an Avengers Assemble joke at this point? I don't know. I'm just thankful, Kevin, that both of us survived Thanos' snap. Yeah, the odds were against us, but we had some plot armor, so we're, we're doing good. Today in the episode, we're reviewing the new Avengers film from Anthony and Joe Russo, Avengers Endgame. And then we're going to be taking a look at another landmark blockbuster film directed by another filmmaking duo, the Wachowskis' The Matrix from 1999 is celebrating its 20th birthday this year, and we're going to be reviewing it on the show today. All that's coming up on this episode, episode 197 of Seeing and Believing. If we do this, we'd be going in shorthanded. Yeah, you mean because it killed all our friends? We owe this to everyone who's not in this room to try. It's not about how much we lost. It's about how much we have left. We're the Avengers. We gotta finish this. You trust me? I do. You could not live with your own failure. Where did that bring you? back to me oh snap kevin we're here it's finally it's finally the day the hour avengers endgame is upon us we've been waiting about a year to see what happens at the end of affinity war and it's the moment it's the time i'm i'm excited are you excited kevin (laughs) you know i i am excited uh for for multiple reasons wade Multiple reasons. I will say this. We need to let our listeners know before we hop into the review that this is going to be a a spoiler-free review. So we're going to try to keep it like we usually do. We're not going to go into too many details. And Kevin, as we were talking through, we decided to keep it light on the plot because I know a number of people, they want to go in and if there's if there's something that the Avengers marketing team has done well this time around... It's the trailer has shown almost almost nothing past, I don't know, maybe 25 minutes of the film, 30 minutes of the film, which I think is pretty which is pretty wonderful. So we'll we'll be light on that. And then Kevin, I am excited. Our Patreon supporters will be able to get a spoiler-filled review of the Avengers in-game on our feed. And that that's when we'll just get into all all the nitty gritty, all of our fan theories, we'll just let it, we'll let it all come out. Yeah, it would, it seems like a waste to talk about this movie without mentioning any spoilerish material at all. There's a lot to talk about, obviously. So rather than stick that into this episode and make people wait to listen until after they'd already seen the movie themselves, we'll sort of split the difference, talk about it here, but also give a little something extra to those of us who are kind enough to throw some of their cash our way on Patreon. Yeah, and so that'll be up probably early next week. So this is going to hit Friday release day for Endgame. A few days later, check your Patreon feed and you should see that spoiler 
review, and it's it's going to be a lot of fun to record it. We're going to record it here just just in a little bit. Let's hop into Avengers Endgame, the concluding chapter of 21 previous Marvel Cinematic Universe films. Following the events of last year's Avengers Infinity War, Endgame finds the surviving Avengers still reeling from the loss of their close friends and allies, as well as half of the galaxy's population, at the hands of the evil Thanos, played by Josh Brolin. Soon, after the superheroes regroup, they launch a daring plan to reverse Thanos' deadly snap and change the past for good. It's not long, however, before Captain America, Iron Man, the Hulk, Black Widow, Thor, and Ant-Man realize that this near-impossible task just might require them to pay the ultimate sacrifice. Kevin, as we get into our discussion, I'd like to first, I guess, ask you to remind our listeners what you thought of last year's Avengers Infinity War, and then... Did watching this entry change your perception of part one? And how do you think these two films fit together as a whole? Well, we'll get the unpleasant business out of the way first, or at least the most unpleasant business. Uh, I kind of hated Infinity War. I, I really didn't like it very much. I think that... It is near the bottom of the MCU for me, and if I were to to rank all the films, it just seemed like a lot of sound and fury signifying nothing. There wasn't a whole lot that really held my interest about it other than watching the characters bounce off of each other. When it came time for the action scenes, it just seemed like there wasn't a whole lot really invested in it other than just watching the characters use their powers and do their thing, which isn't wasn't inherently interesting to me without something else driving it. So I think that Infinity War is sort of like the bad stuff that you had to wade through in order to get to Endgame, which I think is definitely better than Infinity War. It seems like the Russos had a lot more interest in what was going to happen, actually happen in Endgame. And they just sort of used Infinity War as a way to move all the pieces into the proper locations for that big finale. So Infinity War is not that great, uh, to put it mildly. I think Endgame is... Guts, while it has some problems, it's pretty strong and it's definitely... Uh, as good as it could possibly have been given that it was a direct sequel to something as frankly bad as as Infinity War. So I'm I'm pretty happy with what we got given the circumstances. Uh what did you think? Yeah, so Infinity War we we talked about it last year. I I thought it was messy. It, it's entertaining in the sense that you get all these characters kind of coming together and hanging out and these numerous characters are kind of paired off in fun ways. So we get some great dialogue between Iron Man and Doctor Strange uh, from you know, Rocket and Thor. That part is interesting to me, but it just – it doesn't, of course, feel like an entire story. That's because it's not. But it didn't have the spark that I think the Russo brothers brought to, say, you know, the Winter Soldier. And to Civil War. I've seen 
Infinity War three times now. And I know there are probably some people who who might say, you know, why would you ever do that to yourself three times? <laughs> and then there are others that are like, you know, you need to watch it four more times for the story to really kind of open up. I, I feel like <laughs> I've appreciated it a little bit more, understanding what the Russos are trying to do. As we as we look at Endgame, I think Endgame is pretty good. I actually think it's really good. And I'm very pleased because of my disappointment with Infinity War. So so I, I think that this is a good film. And I feel like the Russo brothers handle the material much better. And it's like you said, Kevin, they are at the meat of the story. They're where they want to be. The setup's been done. Now we can get down to the good stuff. Now, there are a lot of people that love Infinity War. They, you know, they think it's fantastic. They love that setup. It just wasn't necessarily for me. But I think almost on every level, I like this movie better. From the action sequences to the banter to the dialogue, all of it, I think, is stronger than the previous movie. Yeah, well, I think for a nice little case study in contrast between Infinity War and Endgame, you really, the first half hour of of each movie are pretty instructive, I think. So Infinity War really doesn't waste a whole lot of time before launching us right into the middle of the plot, because it has a lot of, of plot business to get through. So we're immediately thrown onto... Uh, the Asgard ship, you know, Thanos is doing his thing. He's he's brutalizing Thor and the Hulk. Um, then we switch to Earth and we see the beginning of the conflict on Earth with uh, you know Spider Man and Doctor Strange and and Iron Man doing their thing. And there's really it's almost like watching an itchy and scratchy cartoon. You know, they fight, they fight, they fight, they fight, they fight, and then they fight some more, and then the movie kind of continues on in that vein. By contrast. Endgame, the first half hour of this film is really just spent with the characters as they try to cope with despair, with their own failure, and with the grief they feel over the half of the Earth's population that they've lost as a result of the events of the previous film. And it's it's just a night and day contrast in and a masterclass in what makes a film interesting. What makes a film interesting isn't watching a lot of special effects pyrotechnics or you know wisecracking superheroes punching each other. What's really interesting about these films is watching them just be people who feel certain obligations and who have certain powers, but they don't that that's not the reason that we're interested in them as characters. We're interested in them partly because of those powers, but mostly because they're people who just happen to have powers. And the first half hour of Endgame where, for example, there's a scene where we finally see Tony Stark reunited with Captain America and the rest of the gang, and Stark is basically struggling with just extreme uh, physical trauma, extreme emotional trauma, and... Robert Downey Jr.'s performance in that scene is full of grief, full of rage, and almost full of self-loathing and loathing of the events that led everything up to the big failure in Infinity War. His performance, he's, he's choked up. He can barely get the words out. 
And I was riveted for that scene. And I think that that scene represents what these Marvel movies can be at their best. I wish that after that first half hour in Endgame had still kind of maybe maintained that tone, if not that pace. It really kind of shifts more into what we expect from a Marvel action film. But I think that first half hour really represents the Marvel Cinematic Universe at its best. And I was, and it was a good way to sort of wash away the taste of Infinity War and get me ready for something that felt a lot more well-considered and frankly, a lot more adult. And it's, it's great too, that the movie slows down and let, lets that happen. And I think having the runtime at three hours at least gave the Russo brothers an opportunity to keep that when I think probably most of that would have been would have been cut out if you you know they had to drop it to two and a half or or even two hours and by by looking at all of these characters as they struggle with you know all their friends or half their friends being gone and they struggle with their role in that we get to see the different types of grief that these characters walk through they these characters are a wide assortment of individuals and you have some who disappear some who uh, try to blunt the trauma with xyz whether that's work or alcohol or, or whatever it is and we get this fascinating picture that grief takes on so many different forms and it's something that lasts too. It, it there's this, this lingering effect to grief, and I think one of my favorite sections within that is Tony Stark as he's thinking about Peter Parker. I think it's really great. That's a great relationship, and I loved exploring that in Homecoming, and seeing the lingering effects of this entire ordeal. Not only on that relationship, but on what that means for him as an individual. So I thought all of those were all those sections were, were really great. I will say this too: the film has this sort of this sort of fascinating take on what makes a life or what makes survival. So Thanos's big idea is if I if I kill half the universe, then it will allow the other half to live without suffering, without pain. So the earth is going to be better off in the end. And there is this reference that, you know, the, the water is getting cleaner because half the people are gone. You know, pollution is down. And we see that if you give it enough time, the earth will somehow repair itself. But the people still can't let their loved ones go. And Endgame seems to be kind of underlining this idea that survival, even as a planet, is more than just survival, but it's about the relationships, the individuals around us. There's something more there that we can't replace. And we'll even risk the effects that we have on this earth and the effects the population has on this earth to have our loved ones around us. And I thought that was a really great 
point that the film really kind of works through in the beginning stages of this movie. It also, this movie is also pretty perceptive about the various ways that characters struggle with themselves. You already mentioned the different ways that the film portrays them coping with their with their sense of loss. Uh, and a lot of that takes the form of despair. And they, they express it in different ways. But at one point, uh, we come across Thor, who is uh, trying to cope with, with his sense of failure and, and the trauma he's gone through, almost trying to avoid it, right? Like he's, he's not sitting around moping all day, but there's, there's a certain avoidance uh, present in the way he approaches life post-Thanos that is really interesting. When another character comes and tries to snap him out of it, saying like, hey, we have to go and make this right— uh, Chris Hemsworth has a has a great line. He delivers it very well. Thor uh, responds saying, "Don't give me hope," and that's such a perceptive way of showing how despair is is a poison that doesn't just make you feel bad. It also makes you paradoxically not want to feel better. It, it makes you want to push away the good things because having those in your life almost intensifies the feelings of of loss or grief that one has. It's a lot easier to just let oneself wallow in despair rather than work for something better and and work to uh, keep going. And I, I think that that's really interesting. The way that Hawkeye uh, deals with uh, his own uh, his own inner demons is an interesting evolution of his character. Uh, the more straight arrow characters, of course, we see Captain America, who in the post Thanos world isn't you know helping build buildings or doing something with his brawny strength. He's essentially the leader of a support group, and that's just it, it's a it's evidence of how well the Russos understand these characters and understand how to portray them to the audience that we get these moments that on the one hand subvert expectations for what we sort of expect a superhero movie to be about but once we think about them no it makes perfect sense for the characters that they've been sketching out over the entirety of the MCU and i'll say this too about the film if if we're talking about this movie and we're talking about grief and these characters living in despair, it's worth mentioning that this film is actually really funny. It is a very funny movie. And Infinity War, there was there was humor in that film. And and some of it was, was pretty good, and I mentioned some of it earlier. But this film seems to, to keep that naturally. And it's sprinkled throughout the movie, so you have a very serious story. I mean, how much more serious could you get? Half the people in the the universe, in the galaxy, they've, they've all passed away. But we get characters who are allowed to be themselves, and I feel like they're pretty well-rounded in that respect. Also, this is a movie, Kevin, that makes no—it it, it makes no illusion— that this is the culmination of 21 films. If you go into this one and you've only seen Infinity War, I'm sure you'll be able to enjoy it. But you're going to miss so many details. And for me, 
someone who has seen all of the movies, and I think I, I think I made a list. I, I've I've seen all the MCU movies, so all twenty two now, and I think I've seen all of them except one, Ant Man, in theaters. So I've seen them all, and it was this nice sort of culmination of all of that. Infinity War rubbed me the wrong way in the sense that it was like, hey, everything leads to this. Oh, you got to buy another ticket. I appreciate how this movie, it provides closure. And I was thinking about that throughout the film is closure and all these different types of relationships. These characters are looking, they're longing for that type of closure. And we are too. And I feel like it it wraps the bow up pretty nicely in that the MCU could end today and it's okay. Now, of course, this is Disney. This is the MCU. So there are teases of future stories. And of course, we have the Spider-Man sequel coming out here in a few months. But I do like how this one says, hey, everything we've been building up, we're finally going to get it all out there. And maybe that completeness adds to adds to why I, I like this movie as much as I do. Yeah, you know, I'm I'm of two minds about uh, about that topic that you just mentioned because on the one hand, it does genuinely try to provide a lot of closure for these storylines, uh, but on the other hand, there's an entire middle of this movie, right? Like I talked about how much I really genuinely think that the first act of this movie is really wonderful. I think that the the climactic material for the most part works really well. But there's a whole lot of movie in between those two points that is basically the only reason it exists is because this can't be the end. There's the prospect of we kind of have to bring back Spider-Man. We already know Spider-Man's got another movie coming out, so that's not a spoiler. We know something's going to happen. That's something that even before you see one minute of this movie, you know that's going to be coming down the pike. And that's fine in in a vacuum. I think the problem is there's just so much that the Russos are almost contractually bound to include in this movie that it ends up making it feel a little bit like a mess because they have to cram so many characters in this movie, uh, not just the superheroes themselves, but supporting characters, side characters. All of them come back kind of as fan service, as you mentioned, and it can be enjoyed on that level. Like, oh, look, there's uh, you know a character from the second Thor movie. I remember that character. But it doesn't really make the movie more more interesting as its own unit. And it tends to uh, exert pressures on it that make it messier and longer and, frankly, more confusing than it needs to be. And and that's, it, it's a shame. I wonder what a version of this film would look like if the Russos were basically just making it with the core group of Avengers, you know, Captain America, Iron Man, maybe a few others, and let the movie be about them and their journeys rather than having to make a movie that essentially serves as closure for an entire wealth of characters, some of whom only are in here for literally five minutes of screen time, 
but they have to be there because this is the culmination, not just of certain character arcs, but of an entire franchise operation that's been going on for the past decade plus. And I think that that's, it's just sort of, it is what it is, I guess, at this point with the MCU, but that doesn't mean I have to like it. <laughs> I, I, well, I, I hard disagree on that because I, I was, I was smiling throughout this picture and part of it is the nostalgia of some of these stories, the the behind the scenes of, of some of these stories and and getting these characters, like you said, that maybe we haven't seen for a while. And they're they're including some genuine conversations, some genuine emotional conversation. And I, I appreciated that. I felt like characters were allowed to have their say. They had to have their say. And it is it is fan service, but it, at what point it's like, hey, if you're still with us <laughs> after 21 films, then you're a fan. So we're going to have – we're just going to have fun with it. I really appreciated the, the second section and I – yeah, I wouldn't have them change it. And I wish we could get into more details and we will on our spoiler review. But all that to say is I had a lot of fun. I will mention this. So in Infinity War, we get these, you know, this kind of big battle towards the end, this big kind of action sequence, the climax, and I found it pretty bland. It was at uh, Wakanda. These alien creatures, I, I just was not a fan of it. And as I watched the film yesterday, I just, I felt myself just kind of tuning out during those sections. And in this film, we get another... We get a climactic sequence, and I won't say anything other than I love it. I absolutely love it. I I was was smiling. I felt like it was emotional. I felt like it was intense. It was it was what I was expecting in Infinity War, and it was here. And you know what? I will compare it to. I'll compare it to Ready Player One. And in Ready Player One, we just get all the pieces kind of thrown out there, and we just have a good time with it. And I really enjoy kind of the route that this film takes. It's not exactly the same, but uh, I I thought it was great, and I I think part of the part of the reason that I do enjoy this movie is because it's just it's just so enjoyable. And I know that's almost like a lazy way of saying it, but it's I like these characters. We've been with these characters for so long, and at at some point, it's like, hey, let's just. Let's do things with these characters that they've never done before and just have a good time. And, you know, I had a good time with that. Well, I'll give this to the Russo brothers. Since you, since you brought up the big finale of Ready Player One, they absolutely outdo Spielberg. If we're just comparing <laughs> those two parts of the movies. I mean, we, we talked about Ready Player One on the, on the, on the podcast uh, when it first came out. I was considerably less of a fan than, than you were of it. Uh, particularly that final action sequence. I think the Russos do a better job. And we saw this in the airport fight in Captain America Civil War. The Russos have a real talent for action sequences where they essentially empty the entire toy box onto the floor and they sort of crash them all together, right? The, and they manage to do that in a way where the action is still remains pretty legible. It's not like... For example, in Infinity War, where it's a bunch of CGI armies crashing into each other and there's not really any discernible stakes or or anything to really focus on. 
at, at the end of Endgame, you know what the stakes are, you know what's going on, and the action is is pretty well shot. And I think that that's done really well. I also think part of the reason why Infinity War's big action scenes weren't all that interesting is because there wasn't a whole lot of storytelling happening in those battle scenes. All of the plot was happening, all of the plot and character moments were happening outside of the action scene. So the big showdown in Wakanda was not really anything other than it felt like filler. You know, it was a bunch of armies crashing into each other, people punching other people, there were some lasers. There wasn't really anything else going on besides that, though. In Endgame, the final confrontation includes some action beats that are both enjoyable just simply from, you know, you like to watch fun action scenes, but also in the way the action is orchestrated, we get really interesting character moments that give a sense of progression to those figures that we haven't seen in previous movies and that seem like a logical extension of those previous movies. And I think that it's something that I I heard argued a lot in favor of Infinity War and didn't buy then. But I buy it for for Endgame, and that's that deserves recognition. Even if I think that the middle section leading up to that climax was not really, not really as worthwhile. Yeah, you know, I I think there are some there's some messy elements in the movie, some uh, messy plot, or or maybe even a little bit of confusing plot. I think it's okay to say, you know, there is time, time is bent in a certain way, right? So if they're going to, if they've got to change the past, they've got to do something involving time. And I think some of that gets a little confusing. And we were talking about it before we recorded, and we'll talk about it in, in the spoiler cast. But some of that is a little, it, it, I'm not sure it exactly works. But at, at some point, and I say this about other films too, at some point you're just having such a good time or you're you're so connected to these characters. And like you said, the development and the action that's happening in the middle of whatever climactic showdown there is, uh, that it's okay and it, it works. I'll also say this too. In some ways, the film is okay getting a little weird and quirky. And some of those small quirky parts were were just some of my favorites. There's some really kind of interesting dynamics and I don't I don't read the the comics, Marvel comics enough to know, oh, that's a reference to this and that. But you almost see that kind of going on. And I think for the most part it works. You've got a film that's you know, serious, but also pretty funny, uh, a film that's quirky, a film that's just a lot of movie. And yet all the pieces for me seem to be there. And like I said, I'm going to see this in a couple days. I'm going to go with some friends, go with Priscilla. I, I, I'm interested in how it all holds up the second time around. I'll also know when to use the restroom. It is three hours, right? Uh, but I'm interested in, in what I'm going to think of it then. But as for now, I'm I'm pretty happy with this film. Yeah, I, when I say that this is this movie is almost a fans only proposition, I mean that both in the bad way, which you know that's probably not any surprise to longtime listeners, but also in a good way. If you are a huge fan of Marvel, you're going to enjoy 
Avengers Endgame. This is not going to be a disappointing movie for anyone who has taken the time to watch all of the movies, who considers themselves a fan, who has been breathlessly anticipating this movie. This is probably going to scratch that itch for you. And that's not something that should be discounted or thrown aside, even though for me personally, I don't think it's as satisfying as I would have liked it to have been. Well, listeners, that is our review of Avengers Endgame. If you had a chance to see it, and I think by the time you get to this point, I would assume most of the listeners have had a chance to see it, or if you haven't seen it, you're probably not planning on seeing it anytime soon. But if you have had a chance to see it, we would, we'd love to hear your thoughts. I'd love to read uh, some of those thoughts on air, interact with what I thought, what Kevin thought. That would be awesome. You can email us, seeingandbelievingcapc at gmail.com. You can also tweet us at cbelievepod.com. See Believe Pod on Twitter. Don't go anywhere. We're going to be looking at the Matrix. If the MCU just turned 11, I guess it would make the Matrix almost double its age. It's turning 20. It turned 20 this year. We'll be back with that review in just a moment. is Forever Yours by Wilder Adkins. Wilder is a friend of Christ and Pop Culture. He's in the members group. I believe some of his music has actually been given away in the past to Christ and Pop Culture members. He just released a new album, and he has graciously allowed us to feature some of his music on our podcast episode, so you'll probably hear a couple of songs over the next month or so from Wilder. It really is, Kevin, a great album, so I encourage people to to check it out. We also appreciate people uh, going to our Patreon page and supporting us. We talked about our spoiler episode for the Avengers. That'll be up there. A lot of cool levels. One of our favorite levels, Kevin, is the what can you buy for $5 level. It's a whole lot of fun. And I wanted to ask you this question. What can someone buy for five bucks? $5 would buy you some Walton Goggins branded dentures. I mean, this is uh, an MCU podcast episode. So Listeners may remember Goggins from his role as sort of the the oily 
uh, arms dealer businessman from Ant-Man and the Wasp. So if you've seen his chompers in that movie, you know that dentures that are based on those are a sight to behold. So five bucks seems like a pretty good deal. I think that sounds like a great deal. And sadly, he's not featured in Endgame, but hopefully... Oh, spoilers. <laughs> Such big spoilers. <laughs> hopefully he'll be featured in the future. Listeners, you can support us. You can be a part of that $5 level. It's really easy. Just go to patreon.com forward slash seeing underscore believing underscore podcast. A lot of great perks. We're really excited about all the offerings that we can offer you. And as we grow, we hope that will grow as well. Yeah, that's right. We, of course, would want to encourage all of our listeners to head on over to Patreon and and pledge to us, of course, because that helps pay the bills. But we also enjoy recording these bonus episodes, this bonus content for your ears. So the more people we have signed up, the more reason we have to do that. So head on over there. One thing we also love, Wade, is hearing from our listeners, whether they're Patreon subscribers or not. We love hearing from them on Twitter or over email. And you've recently heard from a listener about one of your recommendations recently. Yeah, so a few weeks ago, I recommended Johnny Guitar, the Western film. And John Underdown, he sent us a tweet. He said a few episodes back when you recommended Johnny Guitar, I picked it up at the library And I'm finally watching it tonight. He goes on to say later, It was a little slow at first, but enjoyed the back half more. Didn't rise to the top of my favorite westerns, but still enjoyed it. I appreciate John taking that recommendation and checking out a film that I I really like. I always love to get feedback, Kevin, from our listeners because we try to take our picks seriously. We try to, you know, work through them to offer our listeners you know, movies or maybe a television show or an article or whatever it is that kind of helped them along the path of cinephilia. So I'm glad that John took that opportunity. And I hope more listeners watch Johnny Guitar because I, I really do enjoy that film. Yeah, well, we when we make those recommendations at the end of the show, we do it not just to sort of like have a placeholder, but because we genuinely love those movies and part of loving something is you want to share it with other people. So it's really heartening to see that for you, you were able to do that with Johnny Guitar for at least one listener. (laughs) Just for the one. Now, at least one, at least one. There may be many more out there who just haven't gotten in touch with us over Twitter. So listeners, if that describes you, get in touch with us over Twitter. We love hearing from you. As we mentioned earlier, our Twitter handle is cbelievepod. You can send us any of your film-related thoughts over there. And if you're more of the essay writing, letter writing type, email is also good. Just shoot us an email at the email address we provided earlier in the episode. Do you want to know what it is? The Matrix is everywhere. It is all around us. Even now in this very room, you can see it when you look out your window or when you turn on your television. You can feel it when you go to work, when you go to church, when you pay your taxes. It is the world that has been pulled over your eyes to blind you from the truth. What truth? 
that you are a slave, Neo. Like everyone else, you were born into bondage, born into a prison that you cannot smell or taste or touch. A prison for your mind. Unfortunately, no one can be told what the Matrix is. You have to see it for yourself. This is your last chance. After this, there is no turning back. You take the blue pill. The story ends. You wake up in your bed and believe whatever you want to believe. You take the red pill. You stay in Wonderland. And I show you how deep the rabbit hole goes. Remember, all I'm offering is the truth, nothing more. Well, wait, with Avengers Endgame being the behemoth that it is coming out this weekend, it's unfortunately the case that there wasn't another new release coming out around this time that seemed like it was willing to to tangle with the Marvel Cinematic Universe. So we don't have a second new release to review on the show this week, as is our usual custom. But it did seem to me that this was an appropriate time to take a look back at Blockbuster's past and see what they have to say to us today. Who Who is going to see a film other than Endgame this weekend? I'm sure there are people, but it's such a big movie. And it's always fun. I, I love these sections where we can revisit older films or maybe change course for, for just a bit. Because it allows us to look back. And two, Kevin, it helps me to remember that the reviews I give week to week are always subject to change. And, you know, if if I were to go back four years and look at some of the earlier reviews we did on the show and revisit those films, then I'm I'm sure my opinions would change. So it helps me to be humble because I also have to watch movies that I really liked and say, okay, well, why did I like those and do I still like those? So that's always a lot of fun. Now, that's that's film reviews in a nutshell for you, isn't it? You know, snapshots in time of our perspectives on film at that time. But in order to sort of maybe turn back the clock a little bit, we are going to be reviewing The Matrix on the show today. Marvel, of course, has essentially redefined blockbuster filmmaking over the last decade and change, so it did seem appropriate to pair the culmination of Marvel's long labors with another blockbuster that had huge seismic effects on both the filmmaking side and the business side of big-budget blockbuster franchises. The Wachowski's landmark film, which celebrated its 20th birthday about a month ago, was one of those exceptional films that changes not just the film scene, but the entire culture around it. To the point, Wade, where merely striking a certain physical pose in front of someone will instantly clue them in that you're referencing The Matrix. In its story of a computer hacker immortalized by Keanu Reeves, 
who discovers that he is the chosen one who will liberate humanity from the false reality imposed on it by evil robot overlords, it launched a thousand undergraduate philosophy degrees, reinforcing the idea that heady ideas don't necessarily have to be mutually exclusive with big 90s action pyrotechnics. Wade, the luster on The Matrix has somewhat been dulled by the disappointing sequels that it had, but we're leaving those aside for the moment to look just at the first film that started it all. And that also represented arguably the last gasp of blockbuster franchises that aren't based on previously existing properties. So, for you, Wade, as you revisited The Matrix here this over the past week, did its reputation as a high point of the American blockbuster seem justified to you upon a revisit, or did your recent revisit reveal to you that you've been regarding it through the rose-colored tint of nostalgia? <laughs> no, I mean, there, there's that. Whenever I saw the film, it was a couple years after it was released, I really did think it was, I thought it was the coolest movie. I just thought it was so cool. And in some ways, I, I still do think that it's cool. Is it a high point in blockbuster history? I think it's one of the high points. Now, that doesn't mean the movie is perfect or is a masterpiece. And maybe that goes without saying. It, it, it does mean, though, that this is a pretty good picture that has all the elements to... I think kind of breaks some new ground while also appealing to a wide variety of people. And I I saw this, you know, this movie probably for the first time in at least a decade, maybe maybe longer. I've seen clips here or there, and I think it holds up pretty well. I think that the the creativity of the story, even though some of the elements have been redone, still feels it feels authentic. It feels like the you know the original uh, the original gangster, right? The OG. It's it is the Matrix, and most of the films that try to emulate that just don't just don't work on the same level. I think that the multiplication of <laughs> of slow motion action scenes have kind of hurt it a bit. But this is one of those movies that I think works pretty well for what it's trying to do within the context of those action sequences. So I think overall it holds up pretty well. I think the plot, especially in the back half, doesn't work for me uh, like it used to. But overall it's a pretty entertaining movie. And and then two, it's also a horror film. I, I, I guess I didn't think as much about that whenever I first watched it, but it's it's kind of, especially the first half, is it's a horror movie. Yeah, that's something that uh, struck me on, on this time around as well. The image of the, uh, the baby harvesters when Morpheus is telling Neo about exactly how the machines use humanity to generate power, the, the endless fields stretching off into the distance of fetuses being heart, you know, grown and harvested for use in this way is is really just grand and, and disturbing in in a very singular way. So that's a good observation for sure. In some ways, Wade, I find that I'm almost the the opposite of you in that uh, on this recent rewatch, I find that, and not just on this rewatch, but on subs on previous rewatches that I've made had of this movie, my opinion of it 
continues to improve over time from the first time I saw it. So back when I first saw the film, I liked it, but I wasn't in love with it in the way that uh, a lot of people seem to be. I enjoyed the action quite a bit. The the performances were a little bit uh, eh for me back then. I, I had a lot of problems with Keanu Reeves as as a as an action star, and to some extent I still do, although my concerns in that area have lessened. But over time, as I've become more uh, discerning about film in general, and as I've come to appreciate uh, good action filmmaking for its own sake, my estimation of The Matrix has correspondingly increased. And I found this most recent revisit to be the the best yet for me. I, I just... The sophistication of the Wachowskis filmmaking throughout the entire film, not just in the in the action scenes, which of course is what everyone pays attention to, but also in the way that they move us through the the exposition is really great in the way they use editing and pacing and the the way they stage certain scenes that are essentially exposition dumps that in a lesser film, in lesser directorial hands, would be sort of like we're kind of slogging through in order to get to the good stuff. They're riveting in The Matrix, and that's all down to the filmmaking techniques. And I think that that might be why The Matrix has almost endured as as an icon of of action cinema rather than just a movie that you sort of watch the best scenes on YouTube and then never really watched it all the way through again. I think that that's the strength of this film is that you do kind of want, want to watch it from beginning to end, not just for the fireworks factory, but also the journey to the fireworks factory. And there are surprisingly few action movies that really would pass that test. Well, I, I like how you mentioned the, the exposition scenes. There's the, a big one that I wrote down in my notes is between Lawrence Fishburne's character and Keanu Reeves's character, and they're in this white room, and he's basically describing what you said, the, the harvest fields. And that scene is incredibly inventive and visually pleasing it doesn't feel like they're just trying to get this over with. It's done. It, I mean, it's fantastic. It really is a, a good scene. And it's amazing how the Wachowskis are able to find opportunities to bring alive information throughout it. And I think that goes along with the Matrix itself, right? It's, it's, it's made up of code, but yet that code is is life. And this is made up of a, you know, this strong history and mythology, but they really do bring that to life. And I think what helps to keep this film, I guess, referred to, uh, even now, is the way that it philosophically and thematically looks at its material. And it's been used by so many people, right? So, you know, this is a, an illustration that's almost always used in philosophy class when they talk about the nature of reality, the, the, you know, a brain in a vat. Uh, this has been used as multiple sermon illustrations for, for resurrection. Uh, this has been used in the opposite sense 
when Morpheus talks about, you know, when you when you go to church, uh, you're you're doing it within a program. You need to wake up. There's there's so much kind of packed into the nature of the story that each group can kind of find some sort of truth in it, and it's also fascinating to look at it now in the you know this this individualized world the sort of fractured world and you have neo's character who is working this kind of boring job and it's like do you want to be you know do you want to be in control of your life do you believe in fate and it is this modern individual saying hey I want to be the caretaker of my own destiny, that I am going to be in, in control of all of that. So there's kind of all these ideas that are floating around, and I, I love to be able to discuss it, but it doesn't ever overwhelm the story. And I think that that's part of the endur- enduring nature of this movie, despite the sequels being, you know, being pretty bad. Yeah, well, part of the reason those sequels are so bad is because it seemed as if the Wachowskis became more interested in the philosophical foo-foo of of the of the script more so than in how that philosophical foo-foo actually aided the Matrix in being a singular, extremely engaging cinematic experience. I don't think that the underlying ideas of the film. I mean, they're they're interesting to think about, and there's certainly a lot to dig into. I'm not sure that they're sophisticated enough to really be worth you know a graduate thesis on necessarily. But the movie, the film moves with such assurance and such uh, engaging speed that you really don't care. You you engage with the underlying philosophical ideas exactly as much as you should in order for them to work and to uh, spark further investigation and further reflection. But this is a film that's almost pure cinema in a lot of ways. So there there are certain edits that really elide time in a way that if you were to stop and think about them, don't really make sense. So there's that early scene where Neo is picked up by the agents after he gets caught at his at his office job. They bring him back and they sort of try to strong arm him into helping them find Morpheus. And he, of course, says, no, give me my phone call. And they, you know, insert the bug in through his belly button, which is another awful body horror moment, uh, as long as we're redefining this film as partially horror and then after that scene there's an immediate cut to neo waking up in his bed and you know thinking like oh it was all a dream which doesn't hold up to the slightest bit of scrutiny if you think about well how did he get from the office to his room and then fall asleep and then wake up and convince himself it was all a dream that makes no sense but the filmmaking is such that it doesn't matter if it makes sense. And I think that that's the key ingredient that this first Matrix film has that the ensuing sequels didn't have. The idea that th- there's a whole lot that doesn't really make sense if you stop and think about it, but you don't want to stop and think about it because the movie is moving you along with such speed and and such just excitement there's so much excitement in this film not just in the action but in the the edits and with the constant stream of exposition engagingly delivered 
that you just want to keep watching the movie. You don't really want to stop and nitpick at plot inconsistencies or character motivations because who cares? And I think that's maybe what the best action movies do is when they cause you to suspend your disbelief so completely that not only uh, do you not, are you unable to nitpick certain uh, holes or inconsistencies, you don't even want to. It's something you're not even interested that's not even on your radar. And I think that that is, is again, evidence of just what a, a an accomplishment of action filmmaking this film is. Yeah, and I mean, if you stop and think about it, and I, I, I think you're right, the, the sequels really kind of make you stop and think about it. But how does Agent Smith work inside this matrix? And why is he doing this versus doing that? And you can get really confused on that. Or you can just kind of go with it. You can you can go with it as he is this program inside of the matrix and he lives by certain rules and sometimes he bends those rules, but it's, you know, but it's fine. I think for me, if there is uh, one weakness that uh, I don't even to say it, it's a huge weakness. But Neo, his character really begins to shift quickly. So at one point, he is he's running from the agents when they do capture Morpheus. And then the next moment, he's like, hey, we're just going to go in and we're going to shoot up this, this lobby. Like everything kind of just changes very quickly. I think some of those elements happen fast. But for the most part, the film builds up to the big end sequence, the subway fight, where Neo embraces his his power. And that's a really great moment. And it's a great moment to, to basically end the film where the film ends. Hey, he has these incredible powers. We don't need to see him explore those further he's he's a superhero within the matrix and so part of it is yeah the first film just works so well because it builds to that crescendo and and it leaves us there but there are a number of twists uh, it's a lot of fun and i found that you know those those shots where the the cameras circle the characters as they move in slow motion it really adds to the digital effect of the matrix and what it means to be inside of a computer program. And you get some really great shots also in addition to those those action sequences, shots where uh, characters are reflected off of surfaces. There's one brilliant shot where a helicopter is reflecting off of a skyscraper, and then we see the real helicopter in the shot. There's this mirroring going on within that. And I think that adds to the movie versus other films that have tried to copy it, this one is fully ingrained in its world, and even all of the technical elements are not just done so the film is cool, even though the movie is cool, but it's done to include us in this story and in this this myth and in this computer program that it's trying to say we're, we're all in. And it, it works pretty well whenever it does that. Yeah, I think this is where the... The unifying of the film's themes, sort of about this uh, this simulation where where anything is possible, and really the only boundary is that of your imagination, that really aids a lot of these these shots with the 
the motion ramping that became a plague upon action movies later on, but is so perfect in this film. And the the questions about logic, about why the, the agents function the way they do, or why uh, Neo makes certain choices or character shifts, it all kind of makes sense because the movie is really about pushing those boundaries of what is possible. And that's reflected, uh, of course, in the story, but also just in the way the Wachowskis are inventively pushing the boundaries of what, at the time, American action cinema did. And that's that's really, really interesting. I want to go back a little bit to what you said about the the shift that Neo makes in in his character. You know, at one moment, he's sort of the, the neophyte. He's still kind of learning what the matrix is and then seemingly a matter of hours later he's you know willing to go toe-to-toe with the agents and jump into a helicopter with a minigun and you know it's uh i i found myself buying into that a lot more this time around and i think that on earlier rewatches i would have agreed with you that it, it does seem like his journey from neophyte to literal chosen one is a little bit fast but i think that this film does a really great job at probing uh, control and and belief. Spe- specifically, it's interested in you know what is the nature of belief and what sorts of changes in yourself and in the world around you can be brought about because of belief. And I think that the linchpin scene is the scene in the in the Oracle's home when they go visit the Oracle and she delivers what seems to be the bad news that Neo is not the one. When I first saw this film, I kind of thought the Oracle scene was dumb. I I thought it was a lot of pretentious uh, noodling around with, you know, there is no spoon and stuff that was kind of lightweight. But as I watch it this time, I think that that's actually a linchpin scene for the entire movie because it it's almost a thesis statement in that we see Neo get the news that you know, an external force has told him he's the one. Another external force tells him he's not the one. Later, he discovers that he is. But the thing that's changed is he believes it. It's not him being told what else to do. And that's where the Wachowskis sort of bring in the the overarching theme of the film, which is that it's not just control by uh, bad actors that that is bad. Like it's, it's not just control by machines is bad, but if you're serving another more benevolent force, it's good. It's more that they're trying to suggest that thinking for yourself and really deciding your own path, that's where uh, true empowerment comes from. And I think that once you latch onto that, the sudden shift that Neo makes makes a lot more sense because he has finally decided that the true power of belief is is empowering to him in in a way and I think that's really interesting especially you know looking at this film from from a Christian perspective that treatment that very serious treatment of what belief is yeah and you know this this movie has so many biblical references it, it just kind of fascinating I think there is that philosophical element. I mentioned that earlier. And some of it is just dressing, right? Uh, what does stand out to me, not only just Zion and Trinity 
and you know these on the nose names but the story too of how humanity built this ai system in that it didn't come as a result of war it came as a result of human unity and it's essentially there the retelling of the the babel story humanity coming together and saying we are the caretakers of our own destiny and we are in charge we are in control we are gods in many ways and as a result this great calamity has come upon the entire earth some of that kind of works against the idea of individual empowerment and that just believe and you can reign like a god within this within the system but i think it is fascinating to note that with this apocalyptic movie it doesn't happen because humans are at war with one another it happens because humans have all gotten together and they lived in unity so there is this nice sort of element this creative sort of hook within that story that i think bleeds over into how we see and understand these characters and their goals within the matrix system. Yeah, I agree. There's definitely a lot to chew on in this film, as we've discovered. Uh, so that is our retro review of the matrix. I know probably 90% speaking conservatively of our audience has seen the matrix. I would be surprised if it weren't 100%, but we definitely know that there are listeners out there who have seen The Matrix and who have thoughts about it. We would love to hear from you and get your thoughts on uh, what you think is the most interesting about this film, what you've seen and noticed anew upon uh, subsequent rewatches. We're always happy to hear from you. Our Twitter and email box are always open. But for now, Wade, we're going to close out this episode with that recommendation segment where we recommend something from the world of television or film on this momentous Avenger and Matrix-filled episode this week, what do you have to recommend for us? So I have a couple of connections uh, to, I guess you could say, the second film and the first film. So we did a 20-year retro review. The film I'm going to recommend is actually about to celebrate its 25th anniversary. And it also stars Paul Rudd. So it's a film that I'm looking back on, uh, a bit of a classic, seeing how it holds up. Actually, my first time to ever see it, it's the 1995 film Clueless from Amy Heckerling. You know, I never, had not seen this film before watching it just a couple of weeks ago, didn't know what to expect, knew that it was loosely based on Jane Austen's Emma, a book that I do like, and I was pleasantly surprised at this movie. It's funny, it's a romantic comedy, at the same time... It's, you know, like Austin's work, it's also concerned with morality and with virtue and what that means for our lives. So it's not just about a young woman played by Alicia Silverstone uh, getting a boyfriend or finding a mate. Instead, it's also about her assessing her life and making a change for the good. So it's a movie that I, I ended up liking a lot, and it works out that it's about to turn 25. And I would encourage our listeners, if you have not seen that, it's a nice little 
it's a nice little time capsule, but I also think in terms of its craft, it's definitely uh, above what we usually see from romantic comedies, uh, both in the past and in the present. Well, this must be the episode of just really solid movies, because my recommendation is a movie that I would probably actually say similar things about as as you said about yours. My recommendation is 1992's A League of Their Own, which, believe it or not, I had not seen until a few weeks ago. I had just, you know, passed over it. Um, but I caught up with it recently. Um, it's of course directed by Penny Marshall, starring the great Gina Davis, Tom Hanks, Lori Petty, and Madonna. And this is a movie that of course lots, you know, everyone's heard of. There's the, the famous, you know, there's no crying in baseball, uh, line from Hanks here, but it's interesting to watch it for the first time here in 2019, uh, you know, after the, the Me Too movement, after, uh, feminism has become a lot more part of a central part of the cultural conversation, not just in certain circles, but just in general. And I think A League of Their Own really does a great job of of exploring those things while just being a really solid, really entertaining movie that takes uh, the sexism of its period setting seriously, but isn't doesn't try to excuse it as, you know, this was just the way it was back then. Uh, it, it really has a very startlingly contemporary view of it. Watching it with 2019 eyes, I wouldn't have necessarily expected a 1992 movie to be as perceptive about the differing treatment of women, both in overt ways and more passive ways. Uh, in a arena such as professional sports and i think of course the the performances are really winning and it's kind of surprising to me that it took me this long to catch up with it i wish i had caught up with it sooner but hey better late than never <laughs> it's one of those movies kevin that whenever i was younger i felt like it was always on television and so that's you know how i've seen it but yeah i know i'm I'm glad that you uh, caught up with it, and yeah, it's a it's a it's a good picture. I haven't seen it in a while, but it is a good picture, and it's funny to think about Tom Hanks and his career at that time, and the character that he he plays in the movie. So it's a lot of history and everything going on. Listeners, we want to thank you for listening to this week's episode. We've reached the end. Hopefully, send us your thoughts about Endgame. Send us your thoughts about The Matrix. Do you think that it holds up? We'd love to get that feedback. And then turn around and read it on our next episode of Seeing and Believing. This one, it's brought to you by our Patreon supporters and ChristandPopCulture.com. Our producer is Jonathan Clausen, who every week helps us to search for the sacred on screen. I'm Wade Beard, and my co-host is Kevin McLenathan. And until next time... This is Seeing and Believing. You have been listening to Seeing and Believing, an official production of the Christ and Pop Culture Podcast Network. Please rate and review the show in iTunes and check out our other shows at christandpopculture.com slash network. Theme music by Alexander Osborne and Lindsay Miz, used under Creative Commons License 3.0.